The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So um, I can't tell you how excited I am to be standing here with you in this space today. And it's kind of funny because I'm watching some interactions take place. So some of you are like, wait a second, I know this guy. And then a lot of you were like, who's this guy, right? Um, So let me just introduce myself. My name is Wayne Brown. Uh, For the last six months, uh, I have had the privilege and honor to be the campus pastor at Ecclesia on the west side. Uh, Some, yep, I hear some like, yeah, yeah. We call it the best side over there, but uh, um, yeah, anyway. So uh, thanks for representing, Mary, appreciate that. So um, yeah, for the last six months, that's been uh, such a privilege to be over there on the west side. Uh, But what you may or may not know is that before that, from 2008 to 2012, I was actually here in Houston and I was a part of the Ecclesia community. I was actually on staff some of that time. My last day on staff uh, and here on the box, it was actually not even the box, it was still back there on the stage at that point, was December 30th of 2012. Uh, And that was the day that I was uh, announcing to all of you, the community here, that it was gonna be my last Sunday. And I can remember how, how torn I was uh, because of how much I love this city, how much I love you. And I was talking about, there's a, there's a passage in Revelation that was just, uh, it was just, it captured how I felt. And it was talking about at the end of all days when everything is made right and everything is made new, that there will be no sea. And it's not a statement that um, there won't be surfing or there won't be fishing or there won't be sailing. Uh, It was a statement that the thing that divides us, because in that day, the sea is what separated people. It was that declaration that we will not be divided and we will not be separated. And I can remember telling you then, I cannot wait for the day when we can all be in the place where God has called us to be and we can be together. And I can't believe that it's actually now. Like that, that, if you'd have told me 12 months ago that I would be back here, I would have laughed and said, there's no way it's not happening. Um, so, cause what happened is in June of 2012 on Father's Day, my wife came to me and said, uh, you're gonna be a dad, uh, which was awesome. Like, that's like the best day to tell somebody they're gonna be a dad, right? I can't, I'll never forget it. She was so sweet about it. Um, and then it was about two weeks later, we, we were having some conversations about, so what's, what have we gotten ourselves into, right? And she said, you know I'm from Mississippi, you know my mom and dad are there, my brother, his family are there, my best friend from college is there, my best friend from second grade is there. (laughs) You know what's coming, she's like, I want to deliver the baby in Mississippi. And the next thing out of my mouth was, it sounds like you're moving. And just to be clear, like I'm coming too, right? Like we're gonna do this together. And so I got to go to Stephen Hicks and Elizabeth Cook and Chris and just say, hey, like in about six months I'm moving. And so we were able to to bring Carson Schultz on to kind of take over what I was doing and I got to work with him for just a little bit. And then I get back and he's on doing amazing things at Big Brother, Big Sister. Like we don't get to work together. I don't know what's up with that. I love that guy. So he did amazing work while he was here. Uh, and we're excited about what he's doing. So it's such a privilege and honor to come back 
And I can, when Stephen Hicks called me, it was actually on the regular, about every six months, he'd call me and offer me a job trying to get me to come back, right? Sometimes it was like really serious, like here's a position. And sometimes it was like, will you just come clean my desk? Like, what do we have to do? Like, can you just come, right? Uh, which was such a gift and it made me feel so loved. Uh, so he called again, it was kind of like his six month interval last August and I uh, went through my normal spiel, which is like, hey, it's not the right time, love you guys, it's just, it's just not gonna work. He somehow convinced us to get on the plane and come fly out and go see what's happening at the West Side and it's beautiful, there's amazing people, good stuff. And then more than that, we actually got to see um, some of the amazing schools. There's the medical center here. My oldest son, uh, my oldest uh, child, Moses, is autistic. And when we got to see some of the schools and the level of care that he would get here, uh, that's what triggered it for my wife. And she said, we have to do this. And so she was willing to leave all of that that I described to come back. So I actually have some pictures I wanna share with you of my family. You can see I'm a blessed man. Uh, I've got a beautiful family. That's my wife, Emily. To this day, she is the sweetest, kindest, most compassionate, most empathetic person I have ever known. She puts me and those two kiddos above herself on the regular. She's fantastic. Uh, and you can see, like, if you think my family's beautiful, she does all the heavy lifting in that department, right? So uh, that's my son, Moses. Uh, he is such a gift to us. He's six. And that's my daughter, Aiden Elizabeth. She's four. I got another, a little bit more recent picture, sans beard, right? Um, I'm not angry. I'm just looking into the sun, right? The, it's, the struggle's real. So, um, but that's my family. And we are so thrilled to be here with you guys and excited to be here downtown continuing a series that we started a couple weeks ago on the Celtic way of evangelism. So if you weren't here two weeks ago, Chris kicked off this series from a taqueria in Houston and throughout the Ecclesia Taqueria Challenge, which was to go to 10 taquerias in 30 days, which is clearly the most Celtic way to do evangelism in the city of Houston, right? Like you're tracking, that makes sense. And then Sean last week uh, picked up and really, I think he did a great job articulating how that word evangelism sometimes rubs us the wrong way. And hey, what do we do with that? And I think he set the tone. So I'm honored and thrilled to get to kind of pick up where he left off last week. So how we're gonna do that is I'm gonna start with sharing, you, uh, sharing with you a story uh, from when I was in college that until last night at the five o'clock gathering last night, I have never shared publicly with anyone. I try not to talk about it because I carry a lot of shame and guilt around this. Uh, so that's gonna be fun. And then uh, we're gonna look at two stories from the scriptures about people who are possessed by demons. Cause that's also the most logical, straightforward way to talk about the Celtic way of evangelism, right? Like this is what you would do if you were doing a sermon. So that's where we're gonna start. But um, so what you need to know about me uh, is when I got to my freshman year in college, I grew up in a context that was really conservative. And not only that, I went to a really conservative Christian school, and it's the kind of school that in order to be eligible to play sports, you had to pass Bible class. And in order to pass Bible class, you had to memorize large chunks of scripture. Like one year we did the entire Sermon on the Mount, right? So that was kind of the context I grew up in. And I didn't actually step into a relationship with Jesus until I was 17. And then once it turned, I was like, I'm all in, what do we do? Like how, I, was, I was going to everything, right? And I remember that summer, one of the things that we did with our, with our whole youth group was we took a one week trip to Florida and what they did is they taught us how to share our faith with people, how to evangelize. And then we went out in the blazing hot sun and we knocked on people's doors 
and we talked to them about Jesus, right? And it was the ABCs, right? You had to get people to admit that they were a sinner and then they had to believe in Jesus, that Jesus died for their sins and then they had to confess that he was their Lord, right? So we're like sweating in the blazing hot sun, knocking on people's doors. No one wanted to talk to us, right? Or you just find somebody on a street corner, it's like, hey, hey, I wanna talk to you, right? Totally the most effective way to talk to people about Jesus, right? It was awful, but um, what it did is it, it helped me actually figure out, okay, like I want to, I actually wanna talk to people about Jesus. But when I got to school, uh, my freshman year of college, it was a liberal arts college, which was like the exact opposite culture of what I had grown up in and what I knew. And so as soon as I set foot on campus, I felt this overwhelming burden of how do I share Jesus with everybody on my campus, right? And I felt like that was what I was supposed to do. I felt responsible for that. And oh, so what I did is I wrote a letter. Um, and I'll summarize the letter to say like, hey, I'm Wayne. Um, I didn't come here to party. I came here to play football and to get a business degree. And I love Jesus and hope uh, one day we can talk about that. So if you ever wanna talk about Jesus, you can come knock on my door anytime and we'll talk, right? Hung it up on my door, left it there for uh, a number of weeks, a number of days. And I'm so embarrassed about it because you wanna know how many people came to me and talked to me about Jesus because of that letter? One. <laughs> and I'll summarize that conversation uh, by the person told me like, that was a really bad idea, right? Like that was the sum of the conversation. And looking back, um, what this book called The Celtic Way of Evangelism helped me unpack and helped me walk through is this idea that when we invite people into that kind of space and when we want to share our life with people, if something's present in us, it's going to be present in our conversations. And the reason or one of the reasons that I wrote that letter was because I felt guilty and I felt responsible for all these people. And I felt like I had to declare it so that I would no longer be guilty. Essentially what, what I was inviting people into was to share and experience my own guilt. Does that make sense? Instead of inviting people into a loving relationship with Jesus. Does that make sense? And so what the Celtic Christians and what Patrick did is they focused so much more on who they were and what they loved than rather what they said. Does that make sense? And so Aristotle had this idea of anytime that you're speaking and you're talking to people, that there's this idea of the logos, what's the message, what's the context? Uh, and then there's also this idea of what's the pathos, what are the passions of both the communicator as well as the audience? What are their feelings and emotions? And then there's the ethos of the communicator. What's their essence? What's the texture of their soul? What's their character like? What do you know is true about them from the moment you meet them through all of your interactions with them? And what the Celtic Christians said is, we're gonna focus way more on ethos and pathos, and we're gonna put that up front. And then they did some amazing and beautiful things with logos that are different than what we typically think of. So what I wanna do is actually walk through that today, is how, what we're talking about is how do we get who we are present with people in their lives. So I wanna start with a story in Mark chapter five. And as we're getting there, we're gonna throw it up on the screens or if you wanna turn in your, your copy of the scriptures, I got some pictures of where this happened. So that's a picture uh, from earlier this year when I was in Israel. And this is on the Sea of Galilee, on the boat, 
feet in the water. Kirby Trapolino did a great job taking pictures. It's just beautiful. But if you can see kind of on the horizon there beyond all the folks in the picture, there's this hill that kind of slopes down. Uh, that's where this story took place. And I got one more picture to show you that makes it easier to see. And it's a little hazy, but that's those hills that are rolling down into the sea. This is the area called, of the area of the Gerasenes. That's where this story takes place in Mark chapter five. And so what happens is it tells us that Jesus got in a boat and he sailed across the lake to the other side, right? They left Israel, they left their neighborhood, they left their hometown, and they went over to the Greek side. They went over to the Gerasenes, and it's an area known as the Decapolis, the area of the 10 cities. And when they get there, this man comes and finds them as soon as they get to shore, that it's a man who's been oppressed by demons. And he comes to Jesus and, and, and through the interaction says, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Which is a clue, it's a tip that they are outside of Israel, right? This man is used to a polytheistic setting. He's used to Zeus and Artemis and Hades and all these gods. So to say Jesus, son of the most high God, it's a very Greek way of thinking about deities, right? And so they have this exchange, right? Jesus and the demons, and they eventually agree like, hey, Jesus is gonna cast the demons out of this man and into pigs, which is exactly your experience whenever the last time you, you know, exercise some demons. I know, like everybody's like, I'm tracking, this isn't weird at all, right? Um, and so they agree that the demons are gonna go into the pigs, and then the pigs rush down the hill that you saw into the sea, and they drown themselves. And so that's where we pick up in Mark chapter five, starting in verse 16. And it says, those who had witnessed everything told the others what had happened. Had, how Jesus had healed the man, how the pigs had rushed into the sea, and how they had destroyed themselves. When they had heard the whole story, the garrisons turned to Jesus and begged him to go away. That actually kind of makes sense, because at this point, their entire com economy has actually been decimated, right? They're saying, hey, whatever you got going on, we don't need any more of that. Like, why don't you take your stuff and go, right? And it says, when Jesus climbed back into the boat, the cured demoniac asked him if he could come and be with him, right? This is hearkening back to what Sean shared from Luke chapter 10 last, last week, when he shared about how Jesus called together the 12 disciples, and then he called together 70 more, and then he sent them out in pairs to go declare that the kingdom of God is near, right? Jesus pulled together people, he taught them, this is what we're doing, this is how we say it, this is what's going on, and then he sends them out. And this man is so grateful for what's just happened, he says, hey man, I wanna be on the team, I wanna help, I wanna make this go further. But look at what Jesus says. But Jesus said, no, right? So yeah, go to the next one. And Jesus said, stay here. I want you to go back to your home, to your own people, and let them see what the Lord has done, how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began telling his, this news in the 10 cities region. Wherever he went, people were amazed by what he told them. What's so interesting is that this man, his concept, his theology, like Jesus doesn't even care if it's off, right? He doesn't wanna take the time to say, hey, we need to teach you about Yahweh. We need to teach you about Moses. We need to teach you about all these things instead of Zeus and all these other gods that you're familiar with. Doesn't even care. Doesn't even talk to him about, hey, the message has to be done this way. Instead he says, no, no, no. What I want you to do is just go and I want you to show them how God has had mercy on you. 
So my question for you, Ecclesia, is where has God had mercy on you? And how can we put that on display for other people? And the reality is that if we're gonna do this well, it means we're gonna have to talk about our demons. It means we're gonna have to welcome people into the places of pain, of shame, of guilt, so that we can help them see how God has had mercy on us. So where are the places in your life where you know the voice of the accuser that says you're not good enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not smart enough, you're not fill in the blank enough? And then where is the voice of God coming behind it that says, I love you, I've forgiven all your sins, I am with you, and you are enough. That that's where we get to put that on display for people. It's way more about showing his pathos and his ethos, who he is with the people. And I've seen this happen recently. So there's a man uh, who's connected us on the west side and he's been a mentor to several folks on our staff. He's been such a gift, such a, such a person of encouragement for us. But he's been through a, a rather difficult season lately. His father was uh, um, old and sick and, and it was getting to the point where his father was about to pass away and so he went to go spend an extended amount of time with his dad. And he was telling us how he, he was never sure about where his father was with faith and with a relationship with Jesus. And so he knew as, as his dad's time was winding down that he wanted to have some conversations with him about Jesus. Uh, but what ended up happening was is he was mostly just present with his dad. And what this means is he was the one that was showing up to scrub his feet or bathe him, change his diapers, uh, feed him, change his sheets, go to the store for him, and he was just present, he was just there. And what happened is, by the end of the time, his dad was telling him, hey, I know you have a faith in Jesus, and I actually want a relationship with Jesus. And what this man told us, he just lit up, he was like, so I, I got the privilege and honor to pray with my dad and begin a relationship with Jesus at the end of his life. And I think it's so beautiful. And then he went on to tell us about how Part of what happened to his dad is that he had uh, really destroyed his liver, that he was an alcoholic and it, it had an impact and that's why he was in, in the condition he was in. And he said, seeing that and watching that take place made me reconsider and made me think, um, maybe I should give up alcohol and he decided to do that. And he's been sharing that with people. And I'm not saying that, hey, like everybody needs to do that because I'm probably gonna go get a beer later tonight to unwind, right? But it does make us consider like, oh, like what is that? And as he was sharing, he was just telling me how often people afterwards say, maybe I should do the same, right? He's not trying to convince anybody. And when I looked at, I looked at this man in the eye and I said, the ethos is really strong with you, right? He's not trying to convince anybody. He's just trying to share, this is what's stirring in me, right? These are my demons. This is what's haunted me. And here's how God has met me in this place. And so the invitation for you is to find those places to remember where has God had mercy on you in your pain and to be willing to share it with others. So I wanna fast forward in the story uh, to Mark chapter seven, because you're actually gonna see how it plays out. And it's easy to miss this if you're just blowing by in the gospel of Mark. So if we fast forward to Mark chapter seven, verse 31, it says, Jesus traveled on his way through Tyre and Sidon, eventually returning to the region of the Sea of Galilee. 
From there, he pressed on to the area of the 10 cities, back to the place where he was, where they had asked him, they had begged him to leave. But look at what's happened now. And it says, among the sick who were brought to him was a man who was deaf and could barely speak at all. And those who brought him begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man. You see what's flipped? Before they're begging Jesus, you have got to leave. And now they're begging Jesus, would you please lay your hands on this man? You can heal this man. And Jesus took him aside from the crowd alone and touched his ears with his fingers. Then after spitting on his fingers, Jesus touched the man's tongue. Looking heavenward to God, Jesus sighed and commanded, open up and let this man speak. And immediately the man could hear. His tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. Jesus ordered those who had witnessed this to tell no one, but the more he insisted, the more zealously people spread the word. And the people astonished said, he does everything so well. He even returns sound to the deaf and mute. See, so many times I think when we talk about evangelism, it's been from this place like I experienced, like, hey, I'm responsible for this. There's some guilt associated and I need to go tell people. But what we mean by evangelism is actually what is so burning and stirring in your soul that even if Jesus himself looked at you and said, I don't think you should should share that, that you couldn't stop because it's so a part of you and it's so coming up that you can't help but share where God has had mercy on you, where God has shown you forgiveness. So I have a friend named uh, Guillermo and we worked together um, in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, for a number of years. I was his boss. And I worked for a company that was a fairly large uh, company, really successful, had a lot of money in the bank. And which is typically the case with money, companies that have a lot of money in the bank is you always have this fear of lawsuits. And so my boss was always telling me, hey, when, when you're in a position of authority and you're someone else's boss, you need to be really careful how you talk about your faith because what you don't want to do is to create an environment where people believe that you discriminate against them based on their religion. Uh, So I was always in this place of how do I have this conversation? How do I talk about this? Uh, So with Guillermo, um, what I did with him is I found out he was really competitive. Um, He liked to do things like races. Uh, So we often got into competitions on our Apple Watches where you um, try to see who can close their rings the most time on your Apple Watch in the health app. Um, To this day, he's the only person who has ever beat me in a seven-day competition. I'm not bitter about it at all. Um, But that's the kind of guy he is, right? He's really competitive. And it's, it's so funny. Whoever's winning on the last day, like that's, you know, whoever goes in the last day with the lead is who's gonna win. Um... So what I would do is I would often just invite Guillermo, hey, like, come do this race with me and let's train some together and let's talk. And in the course of those conversations, I got to hear about um, his life and I knew that he had some familiarity with Jesus and the story of Jesus. So I didn't feel like I had to um, talk about it all the time, but instead what I just wanted to do was be present and care for him, love him and be with him. Uh, figure out how I could pray for him and then just let him know, hey, I'm praying for this. I know that's a struggle for you. So when I left and came back, um, I obviously didn't see him as often. And he called me recently in April, uh, which usually we just text. So I knew right off the bat when I saw that I had a missed call and a voicemail, I was like, something's up. And I get to the voicemail and he says, hey, I, I have some news for you. Something's happened. I need you to call me as soon as you can. So I pick up the phone, you know, 
stopped what I was doing and said, okay, like, we're gonna talk. And what he told me surprised me. He said, hey, I've actually stepped into a personal relationship with Jesus and I'm getting baptized. And he's actually getting baptized today at a church in Mississippi, which is so exciting. Hopefully I'll be getting pictures on my phone uh, soon. Um, and we'll get to show, share them downtown tonight. But um, I remember texting him back later and saying, hey, I can't tell you how honored I am that you called to tell me, um, but why'd you call and tell me? Because we never sat down and had this moment where I you know, created a moment or an opportunity for you to decide to follow Jesus. And he said, no, we never had that talk, but I always knew you were close to Jesus and I always knew you cared about me. And so I just had to tell you, and I was so honored about that. And I think that's what's going on in this story is how do we find those spaces and places where we can just be present with people, where we can let them see what we're passionate about, where we can let them see that we care about them and they can see that we love Jesus and what it's doing in our life. That's what it means to focus on ethos and pathos. But what's interesting is that Patrick and the Celtic Christians also did some interesting things with Logos. And I wanna share a quote with you from Thomas Cahill. So if you remember, Patrick um, wasn't an Irishman. He was actually an Englishman who was captured by pirates, taken to Ireland, sold into slavery. And then eventually he ran away and found his freedom, became a priest, and then later when he was 44, returned back to Ireland because he wanted to bring the message of Jesus, right? Talk about ethos and pathos, right? I'm gonna go into the place where it's risky, where I could be put back into slavery, but I'm doing it because I love you, right? It put it on display. Um, but it says, this is from Thomas Cahill, in becoming an Irishman, Patrick wedded his world to theirs, his faith to their life. Patrick found a way of swimming down to the depths of the Irish psyche and warming and transforming Irish imagination, making it more humane and more noble while keeping it Irish. That essentially what they did with the message, with the Logos, is they encouraged and invited imagination. That what they did and what they were known for was writing plays and putting on plays and inviting people to come act it out, even if they didn't believe in the message, even if they weren't aligned with it, they invited people into it. And this is one of the ways that they were able to do that. And I've seen this play out. So uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but over on the West side, uh, we have an, a Mother's Day Out program where twice a week you can come and you can bring your kids uh, to an environment from nine to two, and they're gonna be loved, they're gonna be accepted, they're gonna be safe, they're also gonna be taught. Um, and they're gonna do, have some fun learning activities. And it's been such a gift and a joy to have my daughter involved. Um, my daughter's such a firecracker, she's hilarious. So I was talking to the lady who's gonna be her teacher next year. And so she just said, hey, I haven't had much interaction with your daughter because I've got a different class, but she's gonna be in my class next year. Tell me about her, what's she like? And I was like, oh my word, she is a little performer, right? If anything even resembles a microphone, right? It could be an ice cream cone, right? It can be whatever. She's got the mic and she's up on the ottoman and she's dancing and singing and she is just getting it, right? Yesterday, we had the privilege of going to my first ever dance recital 
right? A four-year-old dance recital. Has anybody else participated in this kind of social experience? Like, it is one of a kind. It is unbelievable. And it was so crazy to watch. So uh, it was at Houston Baptist University, and the, the whole theater is just packed with people. You can imagine grandparents and parents and just every seat's taken. And she gets up there, never been in front of a crowd that big at all, and she doesn't care a lick, right? She is shaking it and breaking it down. Uh, she was totally in her element, and she loves to tell stories. And what she always tells us is stories about when she was a little girl, which is hilarious, right? <laughs> and you would not believe the life that she had when she was a little girl. All the places she's been, all the mountains she's climbed, we are always amazed, like, oh my gosh, I don't remember that. Who'd you go with, you know? <laughs> She tells us about all the food that she eats, which we know is a lie, right? Because let's be honest, for her, it's saltine crackers, bananas, popsicles, ice cream sometimes, and baby food. That's it right now. She will eat a cheese pizza from Domino's, but only if we tell her it doesn't have cheese on it. I'm kidding, I'm not kidding you. And yes, I lie to my daughter so that she will eat more than just those five things that I taught you. You can judge me, it's okay. The struggle is real at my house sometimes, right? Um, so that's my daughter, and they just finished, she and my wife just finished writing their first book, which is so fantastic. It's actually bound by string, right? It's like little ties and like Emily's tied little bows. It's, it looks fantastic. And by book, I mean, there's like five words on each page, maybe, right? And then the rest is a painting that you can, yeah, you can kind of make it out, right? Um, and it's, uh, it's about the mermaid princess. So that's what's going on in our life right now. So that's the stories we're telling. Um, and when I was telling Amber about this, she said, she's gonna love my class. I was like, why? Tell me more. And she says, for every kid in my class, I have them write three stories a year and then they get to direct it in class. They get to pick who's gonna act it out. They get to, they get to pull it all together. And I was like, okay, for one, I wanna be in your class. Like, how do I sign up, right? And then second, I was like, why do you do this? And she said, you will not believe how much you get to see their little personalities and who they are come alive and come out. And it's beautiful to watch. And I think this is what the Celtic Christians understood, is that when we talk about the message, it's not about a formula, it's not about formulation, it's way more about imagination and how do we light people up and invite them into a space where they can talk about it. It's why in the voice Bible, we divide up parts so that when you're reading it as a group, you can actually say, why don't you be Jesus, you be Peter, you be the demoniac, you can actually do that and you can act it out with other people. It encourages the imagination. But Ecclesia, the Logos, the message, is not just about how do we activate imagination. The message itself is imagination. And here's what I mean by that. Let's go to Luke chapter 10. And we're gonna pick up, this is actually the end of the passage that Sean taught last week, where he talked about how Jesus called together the 12 disciples, and then he sent them out in pairs, and then he called together 70 more, and then he sent them out in pairs to go declare uh, peace in those towns and to go say the kingdom of heaven is near. And then we're gonna pick up in verse 38. And it says, Jesus continued from there toward Jerusalem and came to another village. Martha, a resident of that village, welcomed Jesus into their home. Her sister, Mary, which this is Mary Magdalene, 
who we know from other places in the scriptures that it says Jesus cast seven demons out of her. Uh, her sister Mary went and sat at Jesus' feet listening to him teach. Meanwhile, Martha was anxious about all the hospitality arrangements. And Martha, interrupting Jesus, said, Lord, why don't you care that my sister is leaving me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to get over here and help me. And Jesus said, oh, Martha, Martha, you are so anxious and concerned about a million details, but really only one thing matters. Mary has chosen that one thing, and I won't take it away from her. There's one phrase in there that's easy for us in the 21st century to just kind of breeze by. And it's that phrase that says, she went and sat at the feet of Jesus. So on one hand, it can describe her posture and her place in the room, right? That she went and sat, and she went and sat, not just anywhere, but at the feet of Jesus. That's true. But this phrase, sat at the feet, is a phrase that was often used to describe rabbis and their disciples. When Paul is in front of uh, rulers, Roman rulers in Acts 22, and he's explaining his story, he says that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. What he's saying is, I was this man's disciple. He taught me how to do what he's doing, and then he sent me out to go do the same and to teach others the same. That this phrase, she sat at the feet of Jesus, was also a declaration that she was becoming a disciple of Jesus. What you need to know is that in this day, in this age, that was not allowed. Women were not disciples. This was culturally taboo. This, was, this would have been shunned, this would have been shameful, would not have happened. And so there's a part of this where Mary is saying, hey, our responsibility is actually to provide the hospitality arrangements. And she's not doing it, would you get her over here to help me? But I also wonder if there's a space in here where she's actually being a protective sister, where she's saying, Hey, will you nip this in the bud before it gets out of hand? Will you not fill her with these ideas that she can be a disciple? But look at what Jesus says. It will not be taken from her. The message that we have to share, the message that Jesus brings is a present and a future that even we can't imagine yet. It's the kind of life that if you have this voice in your head that says you can't be this because of your divorce or because you were fired from that job or you failed that test or because of whatever pain is in your life, Jesus has a message that says that may be true and you can also be this, right? This is the story of God that Abraham, who got rich because he pimped his wife in Egypt, was also the father of a huge, vast faith. That Moses, who murdered a man in Egypt, also became the liberator of an entire nation. That David, who was a liar and an adulterer and honestly kind of a creep sometimes, was also a man after God's own heart. So Ecclesia, I don't know what that voice, the voice of the accuser says to you about what you can or cannot be because of what's in your past or what's in your present. But can I just tell you that Jesus imagines a future that's huge and vast and bright, not only for you, but for everyone in our city, for all our neighbors, for all our coworkers, for our, our kids' teachers, for everybody. And what would it look like for us to be the people 
that help everyone around us begin to imagine a future of what they can be, of what they can become. So I wanna share one last quote from, with you from Thomas Cahill that I think really summarizes this idea. It says, Patrick's emotional grasp of Christian truth may have been greater than Augustine's. Augustine looked into his own heart and found there the inexpressible anguish of each individual, which enabled him to articulate a theory of sin that has no equal, the dark side of Christianity. Patrick prayed, made peace with God, and then looked not only into his own heart, but into the hearts of others. What he saw convinced him of the bright side, that even slave traders can turn into liberators, even murderers can act as peacemakers, even barbarians can take their place among the nobility of heaven. Ecclesia, our story, our message is a message of imagination. What would it look like for us to become the people who are famous for helping everyone else imagine a life that is bigger, grander, more rich, more profound, than even they possibly could imagine. So I have a few ideas of how we can actually practically get to do this, where we can actually practically put our ethos, our pathos and imagination on display for people. So one is uh, to just start by inviting your friends into your passions. This is where I started with Guillermo, right? Like, hey, come with me, let's go do a race. Uh, It was quite a sight to see him do his first triathlon and it was quite a sight to see me do my first one. If you ever want a really funny story, you should ask David Cook about that. Um, But when we invite people into our passions, they get to see what makes us come alive, what lights us up. And for me, that's a great space to get to talk about. I'm so grateful that God made us this way. And I'm so grateful that God made this thing that I get to enjoy it. So invite people, your friends, into your passions. Second, take Chris's challenge. Take your friends to a new taqueria, right? And when you get there, Try something you've never tried before and then talk about the flavors and just talk about what you're grateful for in the flavors. And hopefully that'll lead to another conversation about what else you're grateful for. What are they grateful for? That gets to put, put this on display that puts who you are at your core on display for them. Another way you can do that is to take your friends to the Astros game. I don't know if you know this, but Astros, we love them around here, right? Big fans. Uh, but you can actually, there are tickets available that if you want to take your neighbors or your coworkers or friends to the Astros game, you can take them for free. Because here's the deal, right? You take your friends to the movies, you're not gonna have a conversation. Everyone's gonna like shush you, right? Culturally, it's like, no, no, that's not gonna happen, right? You go to the basketball game, you can't talk, it's so fast paced, like you're not gonna have a conversation. But you go to the baseball game, you can get into a really great conversation. And what I would encourage you is when you get there, If you don't know what to ask, you don't know what to say, ask them about their heroes. Ask them like, who are the people who had a profound impact on your life? And then just know they're gonna reciprocate, they're gonna ask you that question. Now, I'm a pastor and I feel like what I should tell you is to say like, this is where you tell them my hero is Jesus, right? But if I'm honest, like, oh, I can't do that. It just feels so cliche. Like I I can't say it, but you know who I would talk about? I talk about my dad. I talk about how he grew up without a dad. He didn't have that example, but man, he loved me and my brother so well. I talk about my son, how much he's meant to me, how he has set me free in ways that you cannot possibly imagine and what a gift he is. And I I would talk about Coach Johnson. 
because he's the one who actually led me to faith in Christ. He's the one who helped me get to a relationship. He's the one who let me ask all the cynical, searing questions that I had, and he still was present and loved me. And I wouldn't be sitting here today if it wasn't for him. And what I know is true is, like, you can feel the difference, right? You can tell it feels a little cliche when I say, oh, Jesus is my hero, but you know when I talk about those three, there's something going on, right? The ethos is there. Tell them about your heroes. Tell them how you thank God for them and what they've done in your life. Lastly, this is a really easy one. There's a ministry called Jubilee Prison Ministry. We have some partners and some friends there um, where you can sign up and you can get to go sit with people in prison and you can have a conversation with them. You can just talk to them, right? There's three prisons that are in proximity to Houston. You can get there. And this is where, you know, Jesus said, uh, you visited me in prison. And those people came back and said, when did we ever visit you in prison? And he said, what you did for the least of these you did for me. And if you want some more information about that, it's a fantastic organization. You can find anybody on staff. We'll be happy to share that with you. It's a great way to do that. And then lastly, we need to come to the table. We need to come to the place where we feast and celebrate and declare Jesus' death and resurrection. And we're gonna do that today. And my prayer for you that as we pause, as we eat and we drink, that you are flooded with the memories and the moments of how Jesus has had mercy on you, of how he's forgiven all your sins, about how he's declared his love for you and for all people, that we be reminded of this on a regular basis and we be reminded of it today in a way that's so real and so present that you can taste it. So Ecclesia, will you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for your mercy, for your grace and your presence in our lives, and for your imagination for us and for all people. And we thank you for this bread and for your body, which it represents, that was broken for us. And we ask that today as as we eat, that we would taste your goodness, that we would taste your mercy and your love for us. And we thank you for this cup, for this wine and juice, and for your blood, which it represents. And we ask that today as we drink, that you would fill us with your love, that you would fill us with your imagination, that we would be able to imagine a world and a future for us and for everyone around us that is bigger and vaster than they have ever thought possible. God, may you make us whole. And we ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.